And so I must thank you for not leaving when you had the opportunity. So here, <laughs> let's have another word of prayer, please. What wonderful truths we have been reminded of as we have sung these songs this morning, Father. You are an awesome God, and because you sent us a Savior who is not a dead Savior, He is a living Savior, and because He lives, life is worth the living. And because He lives, the work that He does in us is to revive us again and grant us the victory in Jesus. We pray your blessing upon the Word of God as it is proclaimed this morning, and we invite your Spirit to work in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many fans of the Rocky movies we have here. Fans of the Rocky movies here? A couple of us, yeah? I loved the first one. I thought that was really one of the best. And I had the opportunity when I was working at Moody Bible Institute and I was working in computers and networking, and every summer we would have a conference someplace in the United States for schools that had a residential network. And so one year the, the conference was in Philadelphia. And during some downtime, we're going to take a bus tour of the, of the city of Philadelphia. So we visited all these different places. We saw the Betsy Ross Museum, the Liberty Bell, and all these other things. And the bus driver at one point pulled up in front of the art museum. Every other time, he the window, and we looked out the window. He pulled up to the art museum, and the doors of the bus went open. The art museum. If you know the first Rocky movie, you know what happened at the art museum. And I was the first one out the door. And I was heading up those steps. And I made it all the way to the top. And I'm doing the Rocky dance up there at the top. And the song is playing in my head. It was a wonderful experience. I loved the first Rocky movie. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Rocky movies, allow me to just give a very brief summary. In the first movie, Rocky beats Apollo Creed, but Apollo Creed says it was just a fluke, so they fight again in the second movie, which, of course, Rocky wins again. It's not until the third of the Rocky movies that Rocky finally is defeated, this time by a boxer named Clubber Lang, played by Carrie's favorite, Mr. T. There you go. <laughs> I knew you were going to know that one. So Mr. T plays the part of Clubber Lang, and Clubber Lang not only beats Rocky, he beats Rocky very badly. But, of course, it's a Rocky movie. And so the plot kicks in, and Rocky has to go through all of the running and all of the exercising and all the training that he has to do in order to try to come and beat Clubber Lang in a rematch. And so the whole traditional plot works out. Rocky knew that in order to beat this formidable opponent, Clubber Lang, he had to train hard. He had to work out hard. He had to overcome obstacles. He had to do all the proper steps and all the proper workout. And I think you can see where I'm going now with, with this illustration. Life is like that for us too. The difference for us, though, the, the wonderful difference for us, as we have just been singing, is that we have God on our side. We have God with us, and he has laid out in his word here in Joshua chapter 5 four essentials for victorious living. What do we need to do in our lives today, not just back then, but for us today? 
What do we need to do to be able to live our lives in a victorious manner? And so with your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 5, we're going to look at these four essentials. And I forgot to animate these, so I just revealed all four of them to you. All on you. Number one, as you see here, is step out in faith. Verse 1 of our text this morning serves as kind of a bridge. It fulfills the promise that God made back in Joshua chapter 4, verse 24, that he was going to tell, he told Joshua, I am going to show myself mighty. All the world is going to know that I am mighty. Look with me at verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. The people of Israel crossed over the Jordan River. This was by the power of God. It took that huge step of faith that we've talked about already. But this symbolized a transition from a place of wandering to a place of settling down. A, a, a picture of crossing from the old life and moving into the new life. And the result of this, the result of God parting the waters of the river Jericho at flood stage and the people crossing over on dry ground, the result of that was it demoralized the enemy and it paralyzed them in fear. That's the kind of God we have. He can do those kinds of things. None of, not, none of the kings of these, these things had, had ever seen anything like this before. And notice that the word all is used twice. All the kings of the Amorites. The Amorites were various clans around there. And all the kings of the Canaanites. These pagan kings had never encountered a God who could part the river at flood stage and let people walk across on dry ground and then make it flow back again. In my weird imagination that you guys know I have, I wonder, Jericho is out here just before the, at, the, at the crossing of the, of the Jordan River, and I wonder if God parts the rivers and stacks up the water, and the people of Israel start to cross over on dry ground. I wonder if from behind the walls of Jericho, you heard this great big collective, whoa. You know? They'd never seen anything. None of their gods would ever have the power to be involved in people's lives like that. So the enemy is demoralized and paralyzed. And you would think, man, this is time. Strike while the iron's hot, right? We've got them right where we want them. This is the time to march into Jericho. But God says, no. There's something else that needs to take place. You've stepped out in faith, and that is a wonderful thing. That is a great thing. We need to be walking in steps of obedience with our God. But the next thing is just as important as you can see here. We need to renew the covenant. Look with me at verses 2 through 9. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all these people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. 
For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, all the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were, they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation it was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is Gilgal to this day. Now, folks, you've been those of you who have been with us on this journey through this book, you know that from the very first chapter, God's greatest concern is that his people faithfully observe everything he's commanded them to do. And we know that prior to the book of Joshua, there was an incident when the people of Israel came up and, so to speak, knocked down the door of the promised land. Twelve spies went out. Ten came back and said, there's no way. We can't do this. We're like grasshoppers. There's giants in the land. Two of them said, I think we can. We, they, two of them looked beyond their obstacles and saw the great God whom they served. But the people of Israel listened to the counsel of the cowardly spies who came back, and so they failed to step to ten. Thank you. My wife's going, ten. She sits in front to correct me, and I love it. Bless her. <laughs> so ten spies were believed, and so the people of Israel did not respond in faith to walk into the promised land at that time, so that's why God punished them by saying, you're going to wander around in the wilderness. And they were out there for 40 years. One glaring omission had happened during those 40 years, and it's revealed in verse 5, and that is that generation that wandered for 40 years in the wilderness had neglected to circumcise the male children. This is the reproach that is mentioned in verse 9 that is rolled away because they did finally do that. And I'm not going to go into all the gory details of the practice of circumcision, but it was a sign of of a covenant. That's the big thing to remember in the Old Testament about circumcision. It's a sign of a covenant that God made with Abraham. He told Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky, like the sand on the seashore. All of that from one man. The covenant that God made with Abraham was your descendants are going to come and inhabit this land that you have walked on now. And it was designed to be a sign of that covenant to be kept as an everlasting covenant. God had promised this land to the people of Israel and to their new and to, and to their descendants, but the descendants now are in a situation in danger of losing it because they had forgotten about this covenant that God had made with Abraham that his offspring would be this way. So without being too graphic here, we know the offspring would come through reproduction. That's how people are born. And so ultimately, that was going to create a line, a, a line of offspring from Abraham that was going to become the whole nation of Israel. And from that godly line of Abraham, ultimately was going to be born the Messiah, who's going to come and pay the sacrifice for all the people of the world. So it was something that was to be done as a reminder I want you to turn with me. Hold your finger there in Joshua chapter 5. Turn with me to the New Testament book of Colossians chapter 2. 
It is the book of Colossians, not the book of Collisions. Just make sure you understand that. Book of Colossians chapter 2, and I want to look at verses 11 and 12. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. These are Gentiles. This is not a Jewish church. These were Gentile people. And in the past, they would have been excluded from the covenant of Abraham because they were not Jewish. They were not descendant of Abraham. But look what he says in verses 11 and 12. In Christ, in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The covenant sign in the Old Testament was the sign of circumcision, reminding them of a great agreement that God had made with Abraham about how God was going to bless him. In the New Testament, it transformed into baptism, being the visible sign that speaks of an act of inward grace that has happened in a person's life. Around here, when we have a baptism, we make a point of saying this, baptism is not a means of receiving more Baptism is not a way of getting saved. It's not a way of sealing your saving. It is simply a public declaration of a private act of faith. And so that's the new sign of the new covenant that talks about putting off the old flesh, the old way of life. When we baptize people, one of the things we ask them is, is it your desire from here on to live your life according to the teaching of the Word of God? And the answer, of course, is yes, because it's a sign... Not, we're, not that our sins are being washed away, but a symbol of a change in our inheritance that comes through grace. This is further spelled out if you want to spell it out for us over in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul tells us, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, our faith, our hope, our eternal destiny is not predicated and dependent upon some work of flesh that is done on male children. Rather, it is through the Spirit of God that works in us as redeemed believers in Jesus Christ. We glory in the physical act that the Lord Jesus did for us when He died on that cross. That's where our faith lies. It's not in something that happens to us. It's something that happened to Jesus Christ. And then now we get together on a Sunday morning, we worship in the Spirit. We're rejoicing and worshiping what God has done for us. And we look back at all the things. You are, our God is an awesome God, we sang today. What's part of, how, part of the way He showed how awesome He was? He loved us by sending a Son. And His Son was killed. His Son was crucified in the, in the flesh for our sins, not His own. And yet God raised Him from the dead because He lives. We can face tomorrow. And you can go all the way down through that. When we worship here on a Sunday morning through our song, it is all about Jesus Christ. It's not about me. It's not about all the wonderful things that I do. And then, after salvation, baptism is the next step of obedience. And the order here is crucial. Baptism comes after salvation. Excuse me. We don't get baptized to be saved. 
we don't baptize children as a way of guaranteeing that they will somehow be saved. None of that is biblical. We simply teach that baptism is the first step of obedience that you take after you get saved. It's always a public declaration of that private act of faith. Go back with me to Joshua chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Show the obedience of the people. And then verse 9 tells us that God rolled away the approach of Egypt from the people. Forty years of disobedience was suddenly rolled off of the shoulders of the entire nation. Maybe some of us need to be reminded that God's still in the practice today of rolling off years of disobedience. Some of us need to be reminded that God still does miraculous works on our behalf today so that no matter how disobedient we have been in the past, it can all be rolled off through one step of faith in Jesus Christ. It's a good reminder for us from the text. The third essential for victorious living is remember and enjoy. Look, at me, look with me at verses 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. What a powerful day that must have been. As they set aside the sin, they got rid of the leaven out of their tents and they celebrated the Passover. A perfect lamb would have been sacrificed the blood would have been applied properly and the whole nation remembered the final act of defiance of the, na of the Pharaoh of Egypt who said, I will not let the people go. And God said, okay, here's the Passover. If I do not see the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, then I'm going to take the firstborn of every, of every household in Egypt. He did that very thing. And the Passover, of course, for us as believers has tremendous meaning because we recognize that the blood on the, on the doorpost, the blood on the lintel, represent a lamb that has been sacrificed. Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, who was sacrificed for our sins. And that's the only way that the wrath of God can pass over our lives. It doesn't pass upon us. It doesn't come upon us. It passes over us because of our faith in what Jesus Christ has done. What a wonderful reminder. The same God who instituted the Passover 40 years earlier and killed all of the unbelieving Egyptians and yet provided for them. That's the God that's going to go before them as they now move into new territory, into the promised land. And now they can enjoy the produce of the year. This is the first time in 40 years that an Israelite has found his sustenance in what God created in the promised land. Before this, it was that daily manna. The word manna, you know what it means? It means, what is this? That's what it is. People came out and they saw this stuff lying on the ground. What is this? Manna. Manna. I don't know. What is this? I don't know. You try it. I'm not trying it. You try it. 
And they tasted it and they found out that it was sweet and it was satisfying. And for 40 years, God provided for the people of Israel through the, what is this? Until the day that they stepped foot in the promised land. And now all of a sudden, it's not that. It is what God had been laying in store for them for decades now. They were able to eat of the produce of the land. Certainly a momentous occasion for this generation who'd been so dependent on manna. If, you're, if, if you have heard me speak before of this guy named Keith Green, he had a very huge impact on my life. He's a musician, and he wrote a song about this whole incident and about manna and all the creative ways that the people of Israel had to do to fix manna, you know, manna bread and, you know, kind of things like that. Um, manna waffles and manna burgers. Now they're able to enjoy the produce of the land. The wilderness wanderings are over. The report of the spies from 40 years ago was proven true. There is an abundance of everything. And there seems to be an indication in our text that in addition to the Passover, they may have celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread there in verse 11. It's a feast that ran concurrent with the Passover. They were both celebrated at the same time, reminding them that when they, had, when they left Egypt, they didn't even have time to let the bread rise. When God says, go, you go. You don't say, oh, you know, but I've got bread rising in the oven. I get, no, you go without that. In the Bible, leaven is almost always symbolic of sin. It's as if they were recognizing how important it was to take care of their sins before embarking on a great adventure with God as they moved into the promised land. And then number four, keep your allegiance obvious. Verses 13 through 15, Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him, and a sword was drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. We have here a magnificent incident, rich in significance and instruction. It's like that last piece of the jigsaw puzzle that makes the whole picture complete. This is the way that God seals Joshua the same way that he sealed Moses. Moses had a burning bush experience where God said, this is, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go take leadership of my people. Joshua didn't get a burning bush. He got a soldier. He got to see Jesus himself. So here's what I think has happened. No doubt Joshua is rejoicing in the Lord about how he is at work in the nation. of it. The river has been crossed. The, the report of the spies has come back and the people are shaking in their boots and the responsiveness of the people to follow along, to cross the river. Huge successes for Joshua to enjoy. But it seems like as Jericho looms before him, what Joshua does is he goes out on a secret reconnaissance mission. I want to see Jericho for myself. Maybe see Jericho again. Maybe Joshua saw it 40 years earlier when he went into the promised land at that time. And he comes, so he wants to see it. He wants to make sure he understands. He wants to make up a plan of attack. Because remember, at this time, 
Joshua has not been told God's plan, which is you're going to march around the city. So Joshua thinks it's my job now as leadership. I got to come up with a plan of attack on the city of Jericho. So Joshua goes out to go look around the city and he's on a secret mission and he's surprised by someone. Back when I was in high school, back when I was a senior, I was the president of my class. And so I made an executive decision as president. We're going to have a senior skip day because I love doing that kind of thing. We made the decision, we're going to have this senior skip day. I was dating Becky at that point, but she was a grade below me, so she didn't come along and join us. But we decided we're going to have this great senior skip day. But some do-gooder in our class told the administration. And the administration came to us and said, we just want you to know, if you go through with this plan to have a skip day, you're going to get a zero on every grade for that day. So, those of us who didn't care about our grades had a wonderful skip day <laughs> that day. We decided we're going to go out. We don't care. We're going to have a great time. We had made the plans. We we're going to meet at this park, and then we're just going to goof around all day. And we arrive at this park, and we're all excited about skipping school together. And I knew that there was a river that ran through this park. And so I said, follow me. We're going to run to the river. It's just over this little hill. And so off we go with me in the lead over a little hill. You cannot imagine my surprise as I ran over that little hill and found my girlfriend's father fishing. Can you say deer in the headlights? I was mortified. Oh, no. I'm dating this guy's girl, his daughter. What a great guy. He asked, what are you guys doing? I was honest. I said, hey, we're skipping school. He said, oh, have a great day. And I still got to marry his daughter. And it was only much later in life that I realized that was his response because he skipped his share of school as well. <laughs> but likewise, Joshua comes across someone he didn't expect. And probably the jaw is dropped, the eyes are great big. He, comes, he sees a man with a drawn sword standing before him. We know this now to be what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ appearing before he had that body that he received that we celebrate at Christmas time. And he asks this soldier a perfectly good question. Are you for us or for them? And he doesn't get a direct answer. In fact, in the NIV, he says, neither. I'm not for you and I'm not for them. And here's the principle, folks. Listen to this. This is the principle we gain from this. When Jesus shows up, he doesn't show up to take sides. He shows up to take, to take charge. He is there as the commander of the army of the Lord. He's not there to be on your side or to be on somebody else's side. One of the worst things that we can ever do is make our plans and formulate our schemes and then ask Jesus to stamp of approval on him. Jesus does not show up to take sides. He shows up to take charge. 
A question needs to be asked at this point. Which army does Jesus intend to command? Is it the army of Israel? I don't think so, because he's just cemented Joshua as the leader of the army of Israel. I think it's better to understand this as the text indicates. He's the commander of the army of the Lord. Other texts in the Old Testament translate this as Lord of hosts. In other words, what an incredible reminder to Joshua that Jesus gives him. You may think that the work is all on your shoulders. You may think that you've got to come up with a successful battle plan and that you've got to strategically discharge your people into just the right places so that you can win this battle. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm here as commander and I brought some friends. And the whole angel army who stands ready to do his bidding at a moment's notice is there. And what an incredible blessing it is for Joshua to realize I'm the leader, but I'm not in charge. I'm just here to follow the commands of the commander. And how, what a blessing for us to know that the victories in our lives don't resist, re, reside on our own shoulders. It's not about what we can accomplish. It's about being submissive to the commander and seeing what he is going to do through us. Joshua immediately recognizes this commander and he responds in the only appropriate way. He fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? That's the best response you can have when you encounter Jesus in your life. Get down where you belong and ask, God, what do you want me to do? I am your servant. He's told here that he's on holy ground as you remove his sandals. Even though Joshua was still Israel's leader, he was still subordinate to God. And awe and respect are the proper responses to a holy God. So how can we show respect for God? It's through our attitudes. It's through our actions. We need to recognize God's power and God's authority and God's deep love. Our actions ought to model our absolute reverence for God. And respect for God is just as important today as it was in Joshua's day when he comes face to face with Jesus. That's our God, folks. What an encouragement it is to see again how God takes the initiative. Joshua thinks it's all about him. Jesus shows up to remind him it's not. Joshua went to look at his problems and found himself meeting God. And that works for us folks too. We can look at our problems and we can get overwhelmed by them and we can, get, we can be overcome by them and we can, we can feel like we're not equal to the task, but we need to express our needs to God in prayer and suddenly there is fresh light. We see issues more clearly. The Scriptures come alive in new ways. We're surprised by something we haven't been aware of before and suddenly we realize that God's with us in all of the complexity and in all the confusion that our lives represent, even the mess that we've made and that God's here to say, I can do something with this. At our precise moment of need, Lord reveals himself to the man or woman who walks with him in the darkness. 
The burdens are no longer carried by Joshua alone. The question is not whether God is on our side or not, but whether we are, we are being sub submissive to God's sovereign rule and authority because he alone is the Lord of heaven. That makes all the difference. We get all caught up in our problems, our work, our service, our church, and we end up focusing on the wrong things. When we can come to a problem and remember that everything is in the commander's hands and that the greatest wonder is that he stoops to using little lumps of clay like you and me to accomplish his purpose. That's when we find ourselves right where God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us, if nothing else this morning, that victory is not dependent on us. There are steps we should take, certainly steps of obedience and submission to you. But ultimately, victory comes through Jesus Christ alone. I want to pray, Father, for those who are here today. They've never had that moment in their lives where they've recognized their own sinfulness. They've been overwhelmed with the reality that their sinfulness forever separates them from a holy God and that their only hope for reaching heaven and, and enjoying an eternity with God is to rely solely and supremely upon the works of Jesus Christ as he died for our sins. Father, reach those people who need to believe this morning. And for the rest of us who've made that step, help us remember in the struggle and in the problems and in the turmoil and in the sweating and working and, and just doing, striving to be our very best, ultimately, it is all about Jesus Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name.